Navigating the road to success in the entertainment industry can be daunting, but we're here to help keep you centered. Undetoured, navigating the artist's journey. My next guest, Clifton Gutterman, is a casting director, director, producer, teacher, and active member of the Atlanta performing arts community since 2001. Presently, Clifton is the head of the TV and film division of Big Picture Casting. When he's not casting, he's an active member of the advisory committee for the Georgia High School Musical Theater Awards, the chair for the Artist Advisory Council of Arts ATL, and a member of Arts Leaders of Metro Atlanta's Class of 2020. Clifton has cast over 100 productions for Atlanta's theater scene, including at the Tony Award-winning Alliance Theater, where he's also had the chance to direct the Candida Festival, along with the Atlanta Opera, where he's directed, and theatrical outfit. Let's just say he keeps busy. Let's drop in on our conversation that we had in December of 2021. I'm so grateful that all of you have been able to slow down and join us back here at Base Camp in my Fortress of Geektitude here. And today I am extremely fortunate to have been able to get hold of my friend for a small amount of time because he is extremely busy. But when people often describe being of service to others as being one of the greatest gifts that they could give themselves, this next guest is a true testament to that. Having cast over a hundred productions in Atlanta, Georgia, and serving on several committees that have given back to the community in various ways. My next guest is now serving as the head of TV and film for casting for Big Picture Casting. Please welcome my friend, Clifton Gutterman Gough. Thank you so much, Sloan. That was quite an intro. I'm thrilled to be here with you. You are one of my um, I oldest, I guess, but just long-term contacts in Atlanta performing arts going way back. And you've always been a touch point of joy. And uh, we've intersected in many ways. So it's a thrill to be here. I'm honored to be asked. Oh, gosh, me too. And, you know, going back, um, if I think <clears throat> about it, our first touch point would be Bat Boy the Musical. Yeah, you're our stage manager at Dad's Garage. Yeah. Which we got to do at the Alliance for a couple of weeks on their on the Hurt stage as part of their city series. Yeah, yeah. And I just remember that being one of my absolute favorite productions I ever stage managed in my 10 year career of stage managing, because I have iterated just like you, we we tend to be creative people that iterate and kind of redevelop ourselves in in vast ways, you know, like we're all expansiveness, right? Like every single one of us mm. is expansiveness of, especially if you get to be a storyteller, you get to be extremely expansive in what you get to do. And so one of the times that uh, I was in a life <laughs> previous <laughs> was doing stage management in Clifton. You were amazing in that lead role. I mean, it just gave me chill bumps every night. Thank you. What was so great about that is that, it, you know, it was it was a big undertaking for Dad's Garage to do something so big and then also take it to the Alliance. And so that it, was their first time. Huge. And, uh, but what it needed was uh, great leadership. And that was, Sean was still here and Sean Dennis directed it, but as always, the stage manager is the mother hen or the father hen or whoever. And uh, that is you in sort of a nutshell, just you're so caring and take care of everybody and so organized. And so it was it was quite a big undertaking with a lot of people, a lot of props, a lot of blood, a lot of, you know, a couple different venues. And we were so um, safe and taken care of because you were in charge. 
So it was just fantastic. I, that is going to always be one of my top career memories when with my actor hat on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were a fantastic actor. You're hilarious. <laughs> but I love that you have settled yeah. into this amazingly um, versatile uh lifestyle that you've been able to create a lot of different versions of yourself and we talk about this a lot on undetoured because i feel like in life we feel that if we're not doing that very first thing we set out to do like mm. being an actor or whatever it is we're a fa failure and i want you to speak to that a little bit from like when you were a child having that either supportive or maybe you weren't supported i don't know mm -hmm. but just to speak to kind of that first version of yourself and kind of how that translated and been able to get you to where you are today. Sure, I'm happy to. I, I tell the story a lot and story, but this part of me and, I, and I, it really has shaped who I am, but I grew up in a tiny pocket of Southwest Georgia in a tiny little town, population 300, on a dirt road that they didn't pave until I was in the eighth grade in the middle of the country, surrounded by farmers and cows and peanuts and soybeans. We weren't farmers, but I was a country boy. And, you know, I was surrounded by a bunch of male cousins and uncles and father, and they were all hunters and fishers and sportsmen. And I very early on was not, and I was very creative and I was very um, imaginative and I was very much into playing and pretend and crafts and sewing with my grandmother. I just was an odd, not odd, but I just was, you know, the, the grandkid who wasn't like the others. And so um, I quickly found the arts and I had a, a, a great um, family that, that let me and supported me and took me to those rehearsals and, and let me just try everything I wanted, piano and voice and, and community theater and church theater and, handbell choir and and all those things and 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 I'm very blessed that that they saw that in me really early on and they knew that like I was terrified of guns I didn't want to hold one I didn't want to kill an animal I, I I did like to fish I'll say that and I was I did like to you know build tree houses and climb I was I was a, I was very boyish in a lot of ways but I was not like a lot of other kids down there and I have to say you know um and there was some some drama at home and, and some trauma over my life and my family. And I really, I really found that the art saved me growing up. And I was dealing as I grew with sexuality questions and I'm supposed to like girls, all my friends like girls, my mom and my guy friends have girlfriends. And I think that I'm supposed to do that. And I tried it, I failed miserably. <laughs> And, you know, and then now I'm in the middle of the Bible Belt and I have the church telling me I need to be saved and I need, you know, and this is a sin and this is a sin. And so I had a lot of conflicting narratives, but the one narrative that was always um, so strong was the power of storytelling and the arts and how I could go to a rehearsal or, a, a, you know, learn a part or be in a cast and escape all that stuff that was in my head and whatever may be going on at home and really be somebody else for a little while. And I really think it saved me that I got to play in these other worlds and I got to just be myself and around like-minded people who loved me just the way I was. And it has continued to be the arts. Um, I've been very lucky Sloan from like 
leaving that, you know, I left at 18 and went off for an undergrad degree in drama and then later an MFA in um, performing arts and acting. And I've not, I have only worked in the industry since leaving my tiny little town and in many hats, but I've never not had to. And I know I'm very lucky, but because of that, it has saved my life over and over and over again, this, what we do. And so um, I will be forever grateful that the arts found me and I found the arts because I, it truly saved my life. So when you were at home in this small town with, you know, all these hunters <laughs> and your parents, and you said there was a little bit of trauma, is that because there was a denial of who your true self was at the time by them? Or? No, it wasn't my trauma, really. It was, uh, uh, there were some addiction issues in my family and some mental health issues and some, um, just a lot of, a lot of, um, chaos at home and so I I really spent a lot of my time um purposefully signing up for everything <laughs> like I would just go and do everything to get away from it all and you know my parents are wonderful and and they they've been really wonderful to me um but uh, you know I saw a lot and it was um hard but uh I I think I went in the direction of like, I'm going to get, get away from it as much as I can and pour myself into these things I love um, to distract myself, you know? So, um, and, and I will say like, I didn't really, um, I was very lucky. I certainly have friends and I went to school with friends, other LGBTQ friends who from South, who grew up in tiny towns who really had a rough time with that part of their life and who were either really bullied or really rejected or sent to preparative therapy or sent, you know, sent to homes. I had a friend in college who, who really had it really rough. I didn't. And I, and I, 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 but I also grew up in that little town, which was next to another town where we went to actually to school and doctor and stuff. I grew up in, um, I guess what you would, for lack of a better word, like middle-class, popular kid in the sense that like my parents and my my friends parents had all gone to school together too and they were all friends and they stayed in their same zip code to quote a Dixie Chicks Chicks song they didn't leave their zip code um and so I kind of inherited a network of support and and you know my mom was a, a really beloved teacher in the school system there and so it's it's not that I didn't get called sissy now and then or or picked on a little but I was in the group of popular kids and, and all my friends were all the popular girls. Like they were all of like the girls. So nobody sort of would touch me in the sense of like, because, he, you know, I was with them. So I kind of skated by and I had, you know, on the surface, I had a girlfriend or I had a, a prom date or a homecoming date. Um, my best friend from seven, from uh, actually from kindergarten, through now, my female, my best female friend, um, we were always each other's default date. We would go to everything together. It was just assumed. We would literally go to like the homecoming dance, take the pictures for our parents and then get in the car and go to a movie. We wouldn't stay. Did it for, for like for prom too. And later we go to college together at UGA and she comes out as lesbian and we're both now happily out and 
And, but, you know, we just found each other, but our moms were best friends in high school. That's how tight this little place is. So in a weird way, I lucked up because of the community I was born into. So I really cut my lucky stars that I, you know, I didn't get picked on a lot. And I did, so I didn't struggle a lot growing up with um, that. We were religious, but we weren't Bible thumping. We were Methodist. And so I never heard at home, like the fire and brimstone stuff or, the, you know, I, I kind of always knew in the back of my head, if and when I say this out loud and admit it and talk to them, they're not going to pull the Jesus card on me. That's just not going to be my family. And they didn't. They didn't. And when did that happen for you? What was it was um, it was um, just as I was graduating college, actually. So, yeah, 22. I was I was out in college at at UGA and I had um, boyfriends and, you know, and I had relationships and I uh, had a couple of cousins from home who were at UGA with me, too. And and they certainly knew I just hadn't had the conversation with my parents yet. And I hadn't, um, you know, there was no social media at the time. So nobody really knew. But my friends at college. So um, it was a bad break. Actually, I was dating someone, my first ever relation, full relationship um, crashed and burned when I was around 22. And, and it hit me harder than I ever thought it would. And I didn't see it coming. And it was very, very hard on me. And it happened to fall around Easter one year when I was going home to be with my family. And they could tell instantly that something was wrong. And that I wasn't myself. And they kind of, kind of, you know, coaxed it out of me and they were like particularly my very observant grandmother who's now gone but I'm named for her her name is Clifford and she grew up right next to me like a stone's throw across the yard and she's kind of my other mom she she half raised me she knew more she knew before anyone that something was wrong and she they all kind of pulled it out of me and then I just set them all down and told them yeah so it was I was kind of a late bloomer in the sense of saying it out loud to the people I love. But I was I was um, acting on it and 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 very sure of who I was at around 20, 21. And what that energy does to you to just let that weight go. Mm-hmm. Who oh. you came right after that? I'm just so curious because then now it's out, you know, you're feeling like your truest version of your authentic self, which is what you as a casting director want everyone to just be in an audition, right? Yeah, so absolutely. To find that within yourself, what happens after that for you? Yeah, I don't think people who haven't had that kind of coming out experience realize what kind of trauma, what kind of level of just anxiety you carry around with you on a daily basis if you're hiding something or that you you're afraid somebody's going to find out something or in the back of your head you you think there's still some shame attached or you don't um it's just it is it is utterly freeing and it is um it is just it does feel like a, a a massive boulder that was sitting on your chest just gets lifted and it doesn't mean that at all, you know, certainly. And I came of age and out in 98. And that was obviously a very, very different place than where we are now for uh, equality. And it was at the, you know, the crest of the, of the AIDS epidemic. I remember in college, um, 
going to the college health department and getting tested now and then. And those were the days that you had to wait two weeks and you had to call in. And like, I remember, you know, it was, you know, if no one's been through that and friends, you know, I didn't have any person later. I knew some friends that were HIV positive, but you know, you see people nationally or, or, or dying and you, you're sitting there having that test and you think you've been good and you think you've been responsible and you, and then you wait two weeks. That is, that's a lot for a young a person. Lot. I did one as well, right around that time. Yeah. But these days I see, and I know some family members who have young people coming out at their teens or tween, you know, tweens. And I'm just, and obviously TikTok and all these, you know, you just see so I just, it's fascinating to me. And I do daydream sometimes. And I'm like, wow, you know, what if I could have come out at 12? And what is, what a gift that now, like, there's so many resources. It's not that it, it's not that some of the bad has all gone away. I mean, there's still, there's still, um, there's still discrimination out there. Obviously, we still don't have full equality. We still don't, like some states still don't have um, hate crime legislation. You know, we're not, we're not all the way there. But to, I'm just so amazed at how young people today have so um, many resources and can figure out that part of themselves earlier on. And like, I do sometimes think like, oh, who would I have been if I could have been really myself at like 12? Yeah. Yeah, because that's such a formidable age, like 12, 13, my sons are 13 mm -hmm. now. And uh, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of their friends that we knew early on and mm -hmm. transitioning into their truest version of their self. And I love it. It's wonderful. It's like, oh, and they're so supportive, you know, because they're like, I love that they're growing up in that world now that they're like, oh yeah, they're transitioning. It's fine. You know, and how wonderful it would have been for us to have that support system back then for, for everyone. Now, when you are um, just you know, going forward and you find Atlanta, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, for you, this bigger city of hopes and dreams, so, so to speak. Tell me a little bit about what those first steps were into the entertainment community and, and what you first got to kind of experience here, obviously being an actor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I really have had a, a really fortunate path, but it also has meant I put myself in that path and I've been very ambitious and I've always gone after what I wanted. And and then when I you know got the opportunities, tried to show up 150%. That's sort oh, of been so my journey. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, if you, if you get the opportunity, you got to make yourself, you know, indispensable. So uh, my last, you know, I went to grad school at SCAD and um, we had to choose a field internship and we had to go out and find it. And um, my last year and I was starting to get interested in casting and I reached out to Jody Feldman at the Alliance, who is multi-decade um, casting director and producer is now part of her title and uh, just to ask if I could do a summer internship right after I finished school. And I did, and it turned into a four season job. So I, I assisted her one summer and it was, it happened to be the summer at the Alliance when Kenny Leon was on his way out as artistic director and Susan Booth was on her way in and um, Kenny left and his assistant left with him. And uh, after spending a great summer with Jody doing generals and doing a lot of auditions, um, it 
became clear that, that the department needed an assistant and Susan needed an assistant and I was right there and it just happened. And so suddenly I then have a four year job as the assistant to the new artistic director, the long-term casting director, associate AD, the literary department. And I spent the, you know, my first four years out of college being immersed in a major regional theater's day-to-day artistic activity. And it was like another education. And, and then at night acting or a couple of Alliance shows even, they let me do that too. So it was, uh, I kind of like just dove right in after college into like a really busy, busy Atlanta theater community. And then I, you know, I was acting around town at night, including the show you and I did together while keeping that day job. Um, I, uh, you know, and it just sort of evolved from there. We, you all, we all know Rachel May, the founder of, um, Synchronicity Theater, and for the longest time, Rachel was doing all of the casting at Actors Express, and um, I assisted her a couple of times when she needed some help, because I was doing that by day at the Alliance, and, you know, when Rachel got very busy and decided to put all of her effort into Synchronicity, she sort of handed off casting at Actors Express to me, so it sort of was just about who I was next to at what time, and then how they trusted me to take the reins and and move on from there so but it all goes back to being in service like you were yeah like you said making yourself extremely effective as a partnership so that people felt that they could rely on you mm-hmm. and um you know you put the work in you you did your dues yeah and so then going forward from there after that what was the next yeah so all that time at the alliance i was doing all of this acting around town including Um, the show with you and Sean and that actually is what um, I had in the back of my head thoughts of moving to New York I was like I'm in my 20s now if I'm ever going to do it should I and interestingly enough um, Sean who Daniels who was the founder of Dad's Garage um, ends up out at Cal Shakes which is in um, the Berkeley area as associate AD and he is working on a big massive um production of the life and times of Nicholas Nickleby the the eight-hour epic it was going to take up two slots in their summer season and uh he and the artistic director Jonathan Moscone were casting and um uh they were looking for one of the principal roles and uh they offered it to me and I uh went out to California for a whole summer which then turned into another show that I got while I was out there and that I left the Alliance to go be an actor full time. I went to equity. I, I uh, went out to California and that was my stepping stone to New York. And um, because of the work I did out in California, um, I ended up with a New York agent, equity card, and then just moved to New York with those two very crucial things in my pocket and did that for three years. And I really was, um, I was, I was based in New York and I was out of New York about 80% of the time doing regional theater, which was fantastic. I was all over the country at really great places, but based in New York. So I'd finish a show and go back to New York for a little while and audition more and book something, go out. And it was at the time of my life, it was, it was wonderful. And that's when I met my husband. Yeah, I was going to say, so like, was there someone that balanced all of that? Not at the time. I was living the single actor life and actor housing and loving it, but always um, a little lonely. And I had always been 
um, I was always the kind of person who wanted a person and to be with someone and, and to be with them, you know, forever and only them. And I was very, you know, that was just sort of how I was wired. And so, yeah, it was getting a little lonely and tiring and I wanted to be, you know, and I, I eventually joined, this was before apps, but I joined one of the dating sites like match.com. And, uh, we joke cause Chad was on it like three years and I was on it like three months and we met and, uh, the rest is history. I, I, uh, I had been on some not so great match.com dates and I was getting discouraged and dating in New York is really challenging <laughs> you know sites or not but just meeting people in New York at bars or parties or it was very very um, disheartening and discouraging and so when I met him it was, was it just because you um, sorry to interrupt you but was no. it because you felt there was some inauthenticity because Chad is so authentic. Like, yeah, yeah. I know I mean, him that well, but I just he is. Oh, he's he's what he he's what he seems to be, which is wonderful. No, I found in New York, there's just such an edge and anxiety in the air to New York over everything. But then you start going out to bars and meeting people, and I was astonished that like those conversations went like this. You would see somebody, there would be some sort of mutual attraction. You try to start up a conversation. And in New York, it always went, what do you do? What if you, what do you do? Uh, and then you would say, well, I'm an actor. Oh, have I seen you on Broadway? What have I seen you in? And you would say, well, no, I don't know. If you've been seeing regional theater for the last four years, you might've seen me. So no New York theater, no. And then it was just, it was just sort of a sizing up of like, it, it was very upsetting and just sort of like, I, can't we just talk about like where you come from or like, what do you like? What do I like? What are your what are your hobby? It was always just sort of like a job interview almost, or a it was very um just upsetting. <laughs> and yeah, it's funny that you should say that because I've talked about this with other guests about the self worth being in what have you just done or what do you have yeah. to do, and it is so hard for artists to be living in that light of dimmed if you are you know not doing mm -hmm. anything right now because there's a dip or bright because you just did something but then it's going to be dim again <laughs> and like you know and yeah just to have that on us like all the time product oriented or the end result oriented and it's just it's it's just, it's not healthy and i you know i would in my mind i would be saying to those guys or to myself well, I'm pretty proud that I have only worked in the industry since I graduated. I'm pretty proud that I've never, nothing wrong with being a barista or a waiter, but I've been able to have jobs and act. And I, you know, I'm happy that I've been doing regional theater for four years. I don't have a credit that you might recognize, but I'm pretty, I'm riding pretty high and feel pretty good about my choices. Uh, but it, so it was just, you know, it was crazy. But, I, you know, I, interestingly enough, the one show I did in New York was an off-Broadway world premiere. And it was um, this little theater on, on the Upper West Side. And when I met Chad on Match.com, I had learned my lesson. I'm not going to go to a full dinner. I'm not going to spend a ton of, ton of money on my first date with somebody for Match because it could go very wrong. And in New York, a dinner is a lot of money. So I just said, hey, I'm doing this show. And there's a an, a 24-hour French bistro right next to the theater. I, my show's an hour and a half. I get out at you know, 8.45. You know, do you want to have a glass of wine next to the theater? And Chad met me at the theater at like 8.45. And I mean, at the 
bar next to the theater. And we, we sat on those bar stools until 2.30 a.m. and just never stopped talking. And um, when we left, it was like the first snow of the season. And he was going to head uptown on a train and I was going to head downtown. And we're it's snowing and we're standing in front of the subway, uh, you know, entry and we kiss in the snow. And I was like, Ugh. yeah. Okay, so this is a movie. Oh yeah. Written about your life, like. Oh, it was just magical. It was like I heard the music, in you know, I just heard the violins or the, the swelling orchestra. <laughs> I feel that way about my husband too. I mean, it wasn't as romantic, but I saw him <laughs> down the hallway, and I knew he was the man I was going to marry. I just yeah. And then, well, of course, he was in one of my classes, and he asked for a highlighter pen, and I was like, you know, I don't have a highlighter pen. <laughs> if I had a highlighter pen, I'd give it to you. <laughs> it <was so> awkward. <laughs> and then I got sick. I got sick with like this pneumonia. Like I would get pneumonia quite a bit because I'm asthmatic and um and it's so cold in Boone, North Carolina. So I got really sick. I was in the infirmary mm. and he said a note to the infirmary saying when you get out of here, you want to go on a date, check yes, no, or maybe. <laughs> that is so Scott. I love it. <laughs> but you know what you what, what was so interesting all those things I said about my childhood and how I grew up on a tiny town a tiny road and not being super sporty or you know into all those boy things that a lot of southern boys are into that was Chad and so it was crazy I had never dated anyone I, I think I had purposely not dated people like myself I had been attracted to a lot of guys from the northeast or not people who grew up in a tiny place and it was so fascinating to sit there and talk for all those hours to someone who had almost the mirror image of my life experiences. We had just so much to talk about and so much in common that it was just um, effort, effortless. And I bet he didn't ask, so what can I see you? <laughs> no, and he never, he, he had just, well, in like the next week he came to see me in that show that I was in, which was so interesting because I, I, didn't get fully nude in that show, but I got down to my underwear in that show. Um, and so he saw me, he saw my body on stage in a play before he saw my body in his apartment. <laughs> it was so strange, so strange. But no, he never asked, like, he didn't care. He was interested and he's seen me in everything I've ever done, but he didn't care what my credits were. He, he didn't care uh, that I, he, you know, had, I hadn't been on Broadway or he didn't, he just didn't matter to him. Yeah. Cause he was your home, right? Yeah. He, you didn't know it at the time, but he was that home, which is so yeah. blessing, like such a blessing if we can find that in life. Right. Mm -hmm. Find it with someone. And I feel incredibly blessed myself to um, have found it as well. So now Obviously, you have transitioned, though, mm -hmm. into the life that you have now down here in Georgia. Was he cool with just like, oh, okay, I'm going back to well, It was actually him that, got, that brought us back. I was getting, um, I was growing quite tired of New York, and I was also sort of starting to feel like I exhausted and like it was just a lot. And, you know, you can almost, it's almost impossible to save money in New York. It's almost impossible to have a life uh, savings account or thinking about a family. You, you've got to just do so above well to there. And so um, he actually, um, he, he's in advertising and his company sent him to Atlanta for an eight week job 
in 2009 and put him in a corporate apartment. And I was in between shows and not on the road. And I came with him. And so I got to introduce him to the city I love. And a lot of people uh, I knew and he fell in love with it. I mean, rather instantly. And, you know, after years in New York, not driving, there we are in a rental car and we get to drive around and trees and and uh, parks and and his boss could tell how happy he was. And his boss said, you know, Chad, you could do what you do out of the Atlanta office if you are interested. So he he came to me and said, what do you think? And it took me about two weeks to sort of come around to like, yeah, I'm ready to leave New York. I'm, I think I can do, do what I do and make art back at home and still and, and actually feel calm about it. And, and, and then we can have that family one day and dogs and I don't have to spend every day under a, a blanket of anxiety and this ultra feeling of competition and one upmanship in New York and it was the best decision ever. Yeah, and we should tell the listeners how amazing of a community we have here in Atlanta. Like, amazing. I'm an ambassador of Atlanta so much. I'm from North oh. Carolina originally, but yeah. I moved here right after school in 1998. And just a huge ambassador of the family that mm-hmm. Atlanta is. Whether you know each other or not, everyone is always lifting each other up here. So, yeah. just, listeners, you should know that this community, not only I feel, is one of the most talented um, groupings of artists, um, multifaceted, talented groupings of artists, but um, just the feeling that you are enough and that you are valid and that, yeah, everyone kind of- It's true. Up. Yeah, I mean, I realized very quickly when I got back and, and I was lucky that I had had those past connections. So I kind of folded right back into the scene and that's a blessing. Um, and I really realized as soon as I got back, I was like, oh, right. Um, we all, we, we applaud each other's successes here. Like we get excited if our friends do well. We are, in a, and I've lived in, the, in New York, I've lived in the Bay Area, I lived in Chicago for a few months um, and I've seen different communities of artists and um, I do agree with you. Atlanta is very unique in the sense that we are warm and really supportive and it's a, it's a great thing. Yeah, and I think it's important for that to be really, really understood by actors about how much casting directors are rooting for you, no matter mm-hmm. where you're at. I have a very special place in my heart for the ones that are here in Atlanta because all of you have given these artists here so many opportunities to be in positions of their careers that they would have never been able to be in if they were in a bigger community in LA or in New York and have had, you know, and part of that, we've been really blessed about the film community building Mm -hmm. up around us, like since, you know, 98 to now, you know, that, that film community build up around us has been a, a true blessing, but it really comes down to you guys being champions. And I always say this about big picture casting that you're just like, you're the champions for the actors. You, you really, really yeah. root for them. And so when you see a lot of different, cause you see so many actors and so many different auditions, mm-hmm. can you tell me and tell the listener, especially, especially if they're younger and they might not have, had the opportunity to audition for you or, or anyone at this point in their careers, 
from beginning to end of when you see that thumbnail on actors mm -hmm. sure. out to the decision of making that offer and or you call them or call their mm -hmm. agent. Tell me a little bit about that. Although I know it, I want to. Just... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it goes even a few steps back before just seeing that thumbnail. Um, <laughs> and it was a surprise to me because I had done 20 years of theater casting at all these equity houses in Atlanta and Atlanta is unique and, and unlike Chicago or New York theater casting in Atlanta is literally whoever's doing the casting. If it's a casting person or associate AD or an AD emailing Sloan Warren or calling you. There's no system. There's no breakdown services. Agents don't represent actors in Atlanta for theater. So it's it's very one-on-one -on -one and a lot of paperwork, emailed like desk work. So I, I was thrilled uh, to flip over and, and, and be able to do uh, film and TV casting through these systems where it is so highly organized and, and it is uh, very efficient and so that was, a, but I learned a lot because I had been an actor here and I had been with Houghton Talent for 10 years and booked films and commercials and industrials and been very happy, you know, happy acting and being administrator. And I didn't quite know all of the steps. And so I was very surprised to be on the other side and doing it. And then, and then it really made me realize and grateful for not only the things that I booked over the years, but when I see my friends, like if I see you book or when I see people I know and love get that recurring role, I'm like, wow, now I know how many steps it took for you to book that and make us proud and show uh, that Atlantans can do it. Now I see how many people <laughs> you, you know, it's, it's fascinating. So long story short, I'll use, you know, I just cast a, a pilot for Adult Swim recently. Um, so, you know, I put out uh, with the team, we look at the script, we put out a casting break, I, we create a casting breakdown and that includes also the personnel and the, the, the contract and the network and the uh, dates of shooting and anything like that. Uh, and the submission deadlines. It's, so that goes out to breakdown services, which goes out to all of, all of the agents that I choose. We usually just choose all Southeast agents. And so all the agents get this breakdown and they go through and electronically choose who in their roster they feel fits all of the roles I have put out there. And they have two or three days to do that. And then all those thumbnails come in to me and uh, I am looking at all of them, knowing what we need. And I am then making a choice to ask a certain number of those people submitted from all over the Southeast to record an audition and submit a self tape. What is that number usually? Cause I, it, it changes oh, a from lot. production to production. But... Yeah. I think it depends on, you know, it depends on the union status of the film. It depends on the pay rate, depends on the specificity of the role. And if it's incredibly specific or a very specific physical type or, uh, a special skill or, you know, but for a very general, like very, like for a, uh, a Caucasian female thirties um, uh, that isn't super um, reliant on anything ultra specific. Um, I would say about, uh, it depends and if it's union and it's gone out to all those agents, uh, 200, 250, 300. 
maybe times 10 if there are 10 roles on that breakdown. Yeah, it was overwhelming the number I was just, um, and it changes, yeah, project to project. Could be less, it could be more, um, but it was shocking to me how many people live here or can call Atlanta home and how many agencies there are now. Shocking. So fast forward, you know, I put out, uh, I decide who we should request tapes from. Those eco casts go out and actors get that and they either and they open it and they decide to tape and submit or decline if they're not available. And those come in over a few days. And I tend to watch those on a rolling basis um, as they come in. And I have a system of rating the tapes. And um, once everything is in, I uh, determine sort of my top picks. And basically we, we tend to present to the client anywhere from like 10 to 15 or so options for every role that we have curated and feel that are the best shots. Um, real quick question. Do you watch the whole submission? I, well, here's the thing. It depends. Um, if it's a fast deadline and if it is really, it's got to happen really quickly and we've got tons and tons of tapes, I certainly start. And I, um, if, there are, if there are major red flags from the beginning, someone's very wrong in type, someone is far too old, far too young. Uh, literally, there are agents in town who I think just blind click and will submit the wrong gender for roles. And I'm like, you have wasted everyone's time. Um, there's a couple, one person that d just seems to click everything. And I'm like, uh, at some point I need to write them. And I'm like, this is specifically a female role. Yeah. Um, so there are things that, you know, yeah. And so if something is really off or it's just a really bad quality tape technically, or you can tell in the first 10 minutes, they are very green and not ready for this scale of a project. I, I will in move 10 on. 10 minutes, but it's probably 10 seconds, right? You mentioned 10, 10 seconds. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yes, of course. No, say, no tape. 10, minutes. <laughs> 10 seconds. Yes. No tape is 10 minutes. I hope. Uh, yes. Um, so I will, I will not, if someone's a really hard, no, um, I, I will not always watch the whole thing, but on the smaller submissions or on the, I've done a lot of things with kids lately and those aren't in the hundreds because they're, you know, specific types. I will tend to watch the whole thing no matter what. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So then we, um, through the systems, we create a virtual presentation for the client, which is just a, a gallery of our top selects. And it's your, it's the actor's headshots. And then once they click and any notes I have put in there that, that are mine, uh, and then, you know, sort of beneath that headshot is the video. So they come back and they're like, did you have any other choices? Are there any other people we can see? And then I already have ready to go like, okay, here's some that I also feel are strong. Um, and then, you know, hopefully sometimes they'll cast off of tape and sometimes we schedule callbacks and fast forward to you know the choice and who they love and then I communicate that offer to the agent and if there's any negotiating and um, we do that and then I uh, create a deal memo and we uh, I put everything that all the terms of the of the deal on that memo and the agent signs off on it and production signs off on it and we're off and running. So just to go back just a step um, mm -hmm. between the presenting to them and that deal that goes out, 
actors are like, well, I haven't heard anything in a week. I guess I didn't get mm -hmm. it. You know, like I hear that all the time from people. Yeah. I'm like, don't always say that because I've been booked on something and I heard it like a month after, <laughs> you know. So oh, I have too. Yeah. I, yeah. When I was acting, you just never know. Um, and you also never know what can fall through and what can, you know, someone may suddenly not shoot dates can shift and the A choice is no longer available, but they still have your tape. Yeah. And I can still, or I can show it to them again. And, and here's another good, I, I use this example a lot in terms of why I feel it is, if you say yes to auditioning and you were going to turn in a tape that you always turn in hundred percent, no matter the project. If it is a tiny proof of concept short that nobody's gonna see or, or but, but a studio or something, or it is Ava DuVernay or Steven Spielberg or whatever, that if you're gonna say yes, and turn in something that you give it your all because those tapes live with us and in the system and they can follow you. Um, and, uh, you know, I was casting this thing with kids months ago and boys and about a boy and his dog, a little short film. And we saw several young boys and we had some finalists and one kid got it, but the other kid who was like number two was so great and so close. It was just about, about a look and about, a, you know, how, how the director, you know, jived with the kid he liked the most at the callback. But the other kid was fantastic. And then fast forward two months later, I'm working on something else and we need an eight-year-old Hispanic boy. And I, before even putting anything out, I go to the tape from before and I show that to the director and I say, we saw this kid a few months ago. He's amazing. He booked it. He didn't even audition for it. So I write to his agent and say, um, I, I, I took the liberty of showing, you know, John's last tape to this new project. If you're interested, here's the script. The director wants him. He doesn't have to do anything else. He has seen an audition tape. He loves him. And so the kid got, gets something he didn't even know he was up for. So those things live, you know, that's why it's always great to show up and show out. I love that you keep the tapes. I, I always wondered who keeps those tapes like that? Do mm -hmm. they, you know, sometimes have them that they can follow away? They're like, oh yeah, this person can do this accent or whatever it is that they do. And yeah, and another example in that same, the, the original audition about the boy with his dog, this is a good testament to why slates are very important. We had asked those kids in that slate to not only slate, traditionally slate, but at the end of the slate, talk about a family pet. And if you had a dog, bring the dog into the shot, interact with the dog. Um, just tell us a little bit about your relationship to animals. And this one kid, the kid who ended up getting it, he didn't have pets, but he had stuffed animals and a stuffed dog. And he brought in his stuffed animal and had this amazing um, story and interaction with this stuffed animal. And he was, just a, he was just a kid and he was just being himself. And so we're in the audition and the callback and the Zoom and, you know, like a lot of kids who've been coached, he was saying the same word a certain way each time, kind of as if he'd highlighted it or he'd been coached. And, you know, and so the director was trying to get him out of that pattern and just get him to be organic and natural. And he was getting there. Um, and he leaves the Zoom and the director says, you know, I love this kid. My, my fear is a little bit that he's so rehearsed and I, and I just want him to be natural. And I, I hope that I can. I think I'm going to book him, but I hope when we get him on set, I can just get the kid and get away from this like acty kind of prescribed, obviously his mom's like coached him. And I was like, watch his slate. Let's watch his slate. 
because on his slate, he's just playing with a stuffed animal and improvising and he's just being himself. And the director was like, that's, that's it. That's the kid I want. Like, I just need to get in to do that. And I'm like, there you go. Like you just, the slate is, that's who he really is. And he booked it. I mean, a dream, right? To yeah, yeah. Have a direct offer and a dream for you too, because like, and I talk about this in a lot of the podcasts, but that act of kindness of forethought on your part and how an amazing a human you are, you know, that's a true mm. testament to you because you could have just done your job and, you know, done it the way you've always have and not, you know, have that. But you thought specifically for this one child because of the energy that he produced in that. And I, I love that um that energy holds on to us you know like we mm -hmm. it, but it's permeable for other people too and that act of kindness that we give in return is it releases serotonin you know uh, it's a wonderful feel-good hormone i talk about this a lot and uh, a lot of times for anxiety and depression we have to take um serotonin mm -hmm. uh, boosted um uh, in a prescribed drug but how wonderful it is that you can actually get that wonderful natural release of serotonin yeah. by doing an act of kindness and then the person on the receiving end also has a release of serotonin but then onlookers like me hearing this story right now and us hmm. hearing it we also get a boost of serotonin because we're like oh my god this is amazing that this good, good things do happen good things happen yeah well, i think it's because i wore the actor hat for so long and i know how i wanted to be treated and i know how I wanted to be spoken to and the kind of notes I wanted to get and the kind of the what I the, the cheerleading I was hoping was happening for me on the sidelines. So I I think that help, you know, I think that um I think some I think sometimes former actors make really good casting directors and directors Absolutely. for that reason. Absolutely, without a doubt, because you're thinking from the actor's mind and you're able to see okay i can tell whether this person is beyond being authentic or not you know even in yeah. the zaniest of comedies which you get to cast or yeah. Zaniest yeah. things yeah and then so going from <clears throat> that space where you're actually um you know uh, being in control of a lot of aspects of other people's lives mm -hmm. i mean you're kind of you know, the gatekeeper, right? Like, so to speak for a lot of these people's lives and in your own personal life, at the same time, you were not in control. You mm -hmm. had a moment where you tried to have control over a situation, but it just eluded you somehow. And you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Tell me a little yeah. bit about how the balance of that, like you're on one end, you're just doing some amazing things at work, but then. Yeah, I think we're talking about my, my family building journey, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's life, right? It's just, it's just, it's just, it's amazing how life can sneak up on you in an instant and the best laid plans and the best organized people and the best, um, the people who, who, try to work hard and 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 be good and 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 really contribute and um can just be sidelined very quickly by life and you can't um control a lot of things and that's hard for some people who are i'm not a control freak but i certainly have like to have my ducks in a row and i'm very organized and i'm that weird like type a artist who's 
empathetic and emotional and creative, but then also have that very organized brain and need things in charts. And I need to, I need to do lists and I need to check off things and feel I'm accomplished. And when something comes along that you're putting a lot of effort into and a lot of energy and a lot of money and a lot of love, a lot of um, heart and it, and it, and it doesn't go your way, it can be really hard for people like us. I, my husband and I were on a three-year adoption journey and we were working uh, with an agent to do a private domestic adoption here in the US. And we had many close calls and lots of ups and downs. And then a really big, a really big, um, what we thought was um, uh, possibility and, and, and right turn and, in the middle of the pandemic and last year around Mother's Day, we matched with a mom in Louisiana um, who picked us um, from our profile book. And uh, we spent four months um, getting to know her, uh, getting to um, speak to her on the phone and text with her and su supporting her and uh, talking about the our, our future child. And we went out to meet her and her family in Louisiana and met her 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 children and played with them and it was um by all accounts just picture perfect and really beautiful journey and we go out for the birth in august of 2020 and in the middle of two hurricanes we are there in a in a hotel waiting on news and we're not allowed in the hospital because the hospital's full covid hurricanes crazy uh, uh, this beautiful little girl is born and we uh, go to the hospital and the mother says goodbye and we have hugs and we share gifts and we, it's a beautiful moment. And we, um, due to something called interstate child protection clause, you can't cross state lines with the child um, until a lot of things have happened. And then also biological mothers in each state and it varies state to state, they have a different window of uh, time that they can uh, change their mind and uh, before they sign away parental rights. So we had to stay in Louisiana. We knew this was the case for a while. And we were here in a, a hotel and um, eight hours before this mother was set to officially terminate rights with the lawyer, she texted us that she had changed her mind and she needed her baby girl back and she needed her back that night. And she was needed our address and she was coming to get her. And um, we just, uh, it was the worst one. I have never been more shocked and instantly unsure of what, of what to do and just devastated. And it all played out over a, a series of a few hours. And at 11 o'clock that night, we are driving what we thought was our daughter to a lawyer's office under an underpass in New Orleans and handing her back to, to him and riding back to the hotel with a car full of baby things and still the smell of a baby and no baby, no daughter, just gone like that. And it was the word I've never, I've been through a lot and I've grieved in different ways but I have never felt that kind of devastation. I would think it would be akin to her being, God forbid, dead, right? Yeah, or kidnapped. I mean, it just, kidnapped. it was a, a robbery in a way. And instantly, 
you know, and later the stages of grief played out in a more, you know, in an elongated way, but it was a mix of anger, shock, just total, um, just deep, deep sadness. And I've also, you know, my husband and I have been through the loss of like grandparents together who were very elderly and not well, and it was very expected and that wasn't hard. We had never been through anything like that together. And so it's an odd thing to see your spouse that devastated. And we were trying together to sort of get through it because that night we we had already introduced our child to, to her grandparents by video. There had been introductions. And so everyone around our circle is just waiting on the next piece of great news. So we, we had that were, night. We are all on the journey. Uh, I was very, yeah. And so we had to get on calls with family who were, it was the last thing they were expecting and tell family members that it was all over. And so I watched my husband grieve in a way I had never seen him. And that broke my heart times two. And it was an out-of-body experience. I mean, I felt like I was watching myself go through a movie in a way of the worst series of events. You know, and um, but uh, we got through it, and we um, we never did you have counseling. Like, did you go to counseling together? <clears throat> how does that make your relationship? Did it make it stronger, or did it did make it stronger? It did. We didn't. Um, we talked to a lot of people. We we talked to some people who'd been through the exact same thing, and I was actually surprised. I we belong. I belong to this amazing. Uh, gay fathers Facebook group, 10,000 gay fathers from around the world. It's international. And they were, we give each other advice and, and they had been part of the journey too. And so some of them had been through the exact same thing and they helped. Um, but, you know, we, instead of heading straight home, Chad and I rented a beach house in Florida and just stayed at that house for a week and tried to just grieve together and talk about it. And, and just also eat and sit in the sand and and read and just sort of not return home immediately. And uh, it, we did get through it together. And we we are we are we were stronger because of it um, because there was nobody to blame. There was nobody didn't you know. Of course, we could. We, there was some anger at the mom, but it was always her her right to do that. It just wasn't something we saw coming and so it was a shock and so um you know he didn't do anything wrong i didn't do anything wrong our agency didn't do anything wrong it just happens um it just i think in alluding to something that you said to lead us into this question i have been very fortunate in my life in career and love it took me a while i mean i didn't meet chad till 32 or something so it took me a while to find my true love but i think when someone is pretty lucky and fortunate when something like that happens, it hits you hard. You're just sort of like, but why me? Like we've put so much into this and, and I've been trying so hard to just craft a life. And, and I had a daughter for five days and now I don't. Why is this happening to me? Yeah, and then it was odd. You know, the aftermath was very interesting and sort of how the people in our life dealt with it and our friends and family and, you know, we're dealing with our own grief and then we have lots of supporters who 
who were very upset too and, oh, and, and devast- I'm in tears again devastated for us and yeah. and the reach outs were both wonderful and then odd and we heard things that either really comforted or made it worse you know and so it was it was it was strange to sort of navigate out of that and then you know there we are rather quickly like reconnecting with our agency saying like all right now we just have to restart and what's the next step and how do we move forward and the and back of your head is a whole nother agency fee, right? Because like that fee's gone, no matter if you got the baby. Sort of. I mean, some of the things were generally adoption fees to the agency and marketing stuff. And so it wasn't a complete reboot, but we did lose a lot. And so a lot went to that adoption, the lawyers, her, the travel that was just a wash gone with the wind. And so, yeah, I mean, Obviously, you, you know about my beautiful son that we have now, but our adoption journey took w- way longer than we thought and twice the budget that we thought. But I, I, he, we have an amazing son. We are, we are so fortunate. I feel uh, more gratitude than I've ever felt in my life. I, I feel like a different person. And I, I, it was, you know, I, it, it's all okay. It's all okay because my son is here and I get to be the dad I always wanted to be. And, and, you know, I was telling somebody this yesterday, I don't really act anymore. I might one day, you know, but I think that if I were to act again, I, I acted over the years and like all of us would draw on my experiences and what I've been, been through or substitute things if I'd never been through that. And, you know, you bring, parts of yourself to every role and you put other parts away or mute them temporarily. And I went through a lot growing up that I was able to bring to the work. Um, I think if I were to act again, and I don't, I don't know if I was good or bad before, but I think I would be a richer actor having gone through all of this adoption journey. I felt things and saw and saw myself do things and say things and and power through things and, and survive things that I hadn't before it. So I, and I think I bring it into casting too and just my relationships. It's just, I think I'm just a deeper human now. So this is so important listener, just having life experience and being able to not hinder yourself with that life experience, like always just auditioning and never go anywhere, never travel or never, you know, do the things you want to do because you're always a slave Mm -hmm. to just the industry is going to actually be a hindrance because what people really want to see is that full encompassed life. They want to see every facet, not perfection, just flaws and, you right and so um huge massive blessing as well but i can honestly say that it's definitely made me a better person being a parent and seeing life through their eyes and the child wonderment eyes and a better actor a better human being everything Mm -hmm. a better friend um because looking at the world through beginners child wonderment eyes and i mentioned this a few times in this podcast throughout the episodes is one of the most beautiful things you can see in an actor like that wonderment and that unbridled joy right? That unbridled fun that you bring to any part. And let me tell you this, there's one thing I know to be true. 
you are an absolutely nuanced and insightful and authentic actor. Thank you, Sloan. I appreciate that. I, so I really do. Never do you want to do it again, obviously. <laughs> I, I, it was my first love. And I, you know, I have to say, too, when, I, when I miss it the most, is when I watch something that blows me away. Mm -hmm. Not not even a maybe a tape, but more a movie or a TV show or a, a theater. And I that's when I, I I I go God, what they were able to do. I miss doing that and it affecting people the way that affected me. That's when I miss it the most. Like I just you know I just went and watched the new West Side Story, which was something I, the original I watched over and over again growing up and. It was like, like the first community theater show I did. And I was just mesmerized. And I remember I watched it by myself in a theater down the street from my house. I love going to movies by myself. And I was like, oh, there's just so much creativity happening here. And I'm jealous. I just want to do something like that one day. Yeah. I mean, that's when I missed it. Yeah. 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 Thanks for tuning in to Undetoured, Navigating the Artist's Journey. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and subscribe and leave a five-star review. And please check out our other episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And in return, my gift to you is a short, invigorating meditation to get your day started. You can find its link, along with other links to Undetoured, in this episode's description. Undetoured, Navigating the Artist's Journey was produced by Cabot Basden of Say What Sound Studio and hosted by Sloan Warren.